I'm looking forward to getting to know you all a bit more this weekend. I'm, uh, I'm here all weekend, left the family at home, so, uh, so that means I can meet all you. You can be my family this weekend. That's nice, isn't it? And I won't have to ask you to do anything. That's wonderful. So, yeah, this weekend we're thinking about the church. Uh, what is the church and how might we understand it? Why should we bother being a part of the church? Uh, what should we hope to do at church? What should we hope to see church do? Uh, and we're going to do that through the lens of some pictures that God gives us. They say a picture's worth a thousand words. So we've got three pictures that we're going to focus on this weekend. Uh, tonight we're going to think about the church as a temple. Uh, tomorrow morning we'll think about church as a body. And then on Sunday morning we'll think about church as a priesthood. So that's kind of where we're heading. I've just left my flicker over here, so that's not going to do me any good at all, is it? So, but the, the question I want us to wrestle with tonight is, is really the why bother question. Why bother going to church? I mean, I'm sure all of you are, you know, have got full lives, you've got lots of other things you could be doing. Um, it's Friday night, you could be out dancing or partying or... I'd be at home in bed, I guess, if I wasn't here. Uh, we've got a whole weekend of church. Why should you bother doing that? And each Sunday, as you gather together, why? I think for many of us, we do church each week because we grew up in a Christian home. Who grew up in a Christian home here? Just confession, put your hand up. Okay, yep, yep. And so if you did, then that means that pretty much it was just your habit, right? Every Sunday you'd get up and go to church. I remember when I was a teenager, uh, there was one night I went and stayed at a friend's house and I was kind of that age where, you know, you wanted to stay up all night. I don't know why you did that because you felt rotten the next day, but we stayed up all night and didn't get any sleep at all. And then I went home in the morning and went to church with my mum, right? My dad is the minister, and so I was sitting nearly in the front row next to my mum doing this. Because my mum had elbowed me in the ribs. And just in case you're wondering, the preacher can see that really easily. <laughs> I've seen it. But don't worry, I won't hold it against you if it happens. So you just go to church because that's what you do, right? But why? What's the point? What's it for? Well, in this passage that we just heard read to us from Ephesians chapter 2. I think Paul helps us to see the importance of church. Helps us to see what church is really all about. And this is my one-sentence summary. When we meet together, we meet with God who meets our deepest needs. When we meet together, we meet with God who meets our deepest needs. This passage we, uh, we heard read earlier, oh, I'm not ready for that yet, um, was written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. Now, he was in Rome when he wrote it, he was actually in prison, but he had spent quite a bit of time at Ephesus before, about 10 years earlier, we think. He spent two years in Ephesus teaching people about Jesus. In fact, he was the first person to kind of go there and preach the gospel. And so the church in Ephesus knew Paul really well. Um, and Ephesus was quite an impressive place, right? It was one of the main cities in the Roman Empire. And you can go and visit Ephesus now. It's in modern-day Turkey. And uh, a few years ago, I, I went there and visited and kind of walked through the ruins. And you can get a real feel for what the city would have been like in the days that Paul was there. There are some incredible buildings in Ephesus. They had this library 
um, which was like a two-storey library, and they had all sorts of papyri and all sorts of artefacts and stuff so that people could um, go and learn. Uh, they had this amazing amphitheatre. That's just a sky... I didn't take that picture, in case you're wondering. Um, but, like, you think how many people could be seated there, and we're pretty sure that that's the amphitheatre that Paul was actually dragged into when there was a riot in Ephesus. You can read about that in Acts. And they also had this incredible temple. Now, that's all that remains of the temple of Artemis today, just kind of one pillar. But an artist's representation shows us that this is probably what it looked like. It was enormous. It was by far the most impressive thing in the city, in certainly all of that part of uh, the, middle, uh, the Mediterranean. Um, it was an amazing place. In fact, a guy called Antipas wrote about it, and he said this. He was obviously very well-travelled. He said, I've set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, on which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens, and the colossus of the sun, and the huge labour of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. This guy had really got around. But when I saw the house of Artemis, he says, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliance. And I said, truly, apart from Olympus, which is where all the gods lived, the sun never looked on anything so grand. See, in this guy's opinion, this temple was absolutely gobsmackingly impressive. And it was right in the backyard of the people in Ephesus. So the Ephesians were in many ways just like us. They were part of a thriving town. There was business, there was wealth, there was education, there was worship. It was happening all around them. But when Paul looks at the experience of the Ephesians before Christ, this is how he explains it. He says, you were without hope and without God in the world. They were without hope, particularly because they were Gentiles. Look at verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by the human hands, remember that at that time... You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. See, that was the state of the Ephesians. They had no hope because they were cut off from God. See, the only people who really had relationship with God were Israel, right? The nation of Israel to whom God had made all those promises. But they were Gentiles, so they were excluded from the wonderful promises of blessing and a future that God had given to the Israelites. But more than that, he says, they had no spiritual hope. Now, that's remarkable because they were spiritual people, right? They were engaged in worship. They were part of the temple of Artemis and all the other worship that would have been taking place. But Paul says they were spiritually dead, that's the picture in Ephesians chapter 1. As for you, he says, sorry, chapter 2, verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. They were spiritually dead. You know, that's the state of all of us, isn't it? Before Christ, we are spiritually dead. That's the state of the world around us. We're all looking for something, searching for something that will give us life, but looking in all the wrong places. 
We might look to stuff, you know, a new car, a new phone, but I think more and more people are realising that stuff doesn't do it. We're all stuffed to the brim. So we look to experiences. Maybe if I go bungee jumping or skydiving or if I hike Machu Picchu or climb Mount Everest, we have this desire for experiences that will bring that satisfaction. You know, I think this is part of the reason why no one ever RSVPs to anything anymore. I've got friends who are getting married tomorrow and uh, they told me that at the RSVP date, only about 50% of people had RSVP'd. 50%. And I know of someone else who, who it, was, it was like 30% had RSVP'd. Why do people not RSVP anymore? I'll tell you, here's my theory. I think it's because you want to keep your options open. Maybe there's a better experience. Maybe there's somewhere else that I could be that would be better than being at whatever that is. I mean, you might maybe it on Facebook, on the event, right? See, we're all holding out for the ultimate experience. And so we look for it wherever we can find it. We look in games like this. Does anyone play this? Fortnite? Anybody? Oh, confession time. John plays Fortnite. Oh, of course. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's cultural exegesis, we call that. Yeah. I haven't played it. I'm not game because I hear it's really addictive and I know that I could be sucked in. Right. Basically, what happens is you get dropped onto an island and it's pretty much kill or be killed. That's basically how it works. You've got to live as long as you can. And, and people are so hooked on this. You know, it just won the Golden Joystick Ultimate Game of the Year Award, which is pretty exciting, I think, if you make games. But I don't know. But we get sucked into this sort of stuff because we're looking for that thing that will satisfy. But it doesn't, does it? Like Pokemon Go, that Pokemon went. Yeah. Fortnite will disappear too soon. I have a friend who lived in India for a while. He uh, lived in Varanasi, the holy city, where lots of spiritual seekers go trying to find enlightenment. And he met a guy called Babaji. Babaji had lived in India for 45 years, searching for enlightenment. He wasn't Indian, but that's where he went to find it. And one day he was talking to this friend of mine, and uh, my friend was asking him how he was going with finding what he was looking for. And he said, I've tasted the honey, but I can't get the lid off the honey jar. C.S. Lewis says, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy then the most probable explanation is that we're made for another world. We live in a world full of dissatisfaction, longing to find something that will meet that need. We are without hope and without God. And that's why verse 13 is so wonderful. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We have been brought near by Christ. Our greatest need is met because Jesus has made the way open for us to come to the Father, to come to the altar. Paul here talks about how, first of all, this blood of Christ has brought restoration of relationship between people. See, he says, uh, he himself is our peace, verse 14, who made the two groups, that is Jews and Gentiles, one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. See, when we're trusting in Christ, we get brought into a new community, 
the hostility that is naturally between people, the one-upmanship that we naturally have is dealt with. We are all brought together. Jew, Gentile, Greek, Chinese, Mongolian, Australian, whatever that is. Everybody comes together. We are one in Christ. But not only are we brought one with each other, but the hostility between us and God is dealt with. In verse 16, it says, uh, sorry, verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus, in taking the hostility on himself, has removed the hostility between us and God. We had our backs turned to God. We were going our own way and we rightfully stood under God's judgment. God was angry with us because of the way we had treated our Creator. But Jesus has dealt with that hostility. He's removed it. And now he has brought us to God. Together, this one new humanity brought to God. We are made right. We are set free. We are justified. We just heard Dom read the wonderful passage from Hebrews that reflects on this passage as well. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We are welcomed into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. No longer are we without hope and without God. Because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God. We need to let the privilege of that sink in. My second daughter, who's 12, is a bit of a royals nut. It's strange, I know, but years ago, my wife sat my daughters down, goodness knows why, and they watched Will and Kate get married. And my second daughter just thought this was fantastic and so got the DVD of the wedding for Christmas and she's put pictures of Prince George and Princess Charlotte on her wall. I know it's a bit weird. Anyway, she just loves it. If she thought that she could possibly meet the Queen, her mind would be blown. I don't think she would be able to string words together, even though she's usually very articulate. We have access to the presence of God, the King of the universe, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us life and breath. We were without hope and without God, but now we have been brought near. Do you know that nearness? Is that part of your present experience? Because it's a reality. It's what Christ has done for you. 
If you are trusting in Christ, then you are welcomed to have peace with God. So how do you experience that peace? How do you enjoy that relationship with God? Well, as Paul's already hinted at, we actually experience peace with God together. We experience peace with God as this one new humanity that that is unified by this gospel. See in verse 16, in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. In verse 18, it says, through him, that is Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. See, it has one new community that we have access to God. And that's why that let us passage in Hebrews encourages us to meet together. Because when we meet together, we meet with God. And God meets our deepest needs. See, I think we too easily fall into the trap of thinking about God's relationship with us individualistically, right? Jesus died to save me. And if I trust in him as my personal Lord and Saviour, then I will have eternity with God. Now that's true, but the biblical picture is much more we have peace with God. We have been reconciled to each other and to God through the cross. We as a community experience peace with God. And that's why meeting together is so important, because it's as we do that, that that we experience this peace. We experience this reconciliation with God that is one for us through Christ. And so Paul, in the last few verses, uh, verses 19 to 22, he uses these, these pictures to try and drill into us these kind of corporate idea of together being at peace with God. See, in verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. See, we are citizens. We are citizens, God's citizens, part of God's country, in a sense. It's like we have a passport that has God's world on the front. We sing God's national anthem, whatever that is. We stand under God's flag. We do God's haka, if he had one. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? I'm sure God's anthem would be more like New Zealand's than Australia. I love watching rugby just so I can sing the New Zealand anthem. I love it. God of nations at thy feet. Anyway, I'm off track. We are God's citizens. And there's something wonderful about being together with other citizens. There's this little club in Tempe that I love going to called Concordia Club. Has anyone been there? Anyone? No? It's a... Oh, you have. It's a German club, right? It's not Flash. In fact, it used to be a bowling club and they've just kind of, you know, fitted out a bit. But you can get authentic German food. They do this fantastic pork knuckle with lots of crackling and sauerkraut, and they have German beer on tap, and they even occasionally have the umpapa band going in the corner. And German people love it, because they go and they can feel German, because they're with German people eating German food. Church is like a gathering of God's citizens. We're with our people. It's a blessing and a privilege. The second image that Paul uses is that of family. He says, uh, you are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
members of God's household. Now, your household, your family, is where you can be yourself. Yeah, there aren't too many houses that I can just wander into and help myself to stuff in the fridge. Right? I'd suspect it's the same for you. I don't know, unless you're just one of those really familiar people. But my house, my parents' house, and maybe my in-laws' house if everything's been going well lately. <laughs> That's the family, right? They're, they're where you can be yourself, where you can relax. You are part of God's household. This is a gathering of God's family. Church is a family gathering. And so we experience the support and love and comfort that comes through that. But the third picture is the one that I think is perhaps most significant, especially for the Ephesians, and that is temple. See, it says in verse 20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, this is what happens in him, in Christ. We are built together as a group to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We are a temple. Now just think what that would have been like for the Ephesians. Right? They had this <coughs> amazing temple to Artemis right in their backyard. I mean, an awe-inspiring place, right? And they would have seen people coming from all over the ancient world to worship at this temple. But Paul says to them, you are a temple. And it wasn't primarily the temple to Artemis that Paul had in mind, right? It was primarily the uh, temple that was originally in Jerusalem. The temple that Solomon had built. The temple that the God of heaven graciously dwelt in so that Israel might have access to him. That's the temple that they're being built into in Christ. See, in that temple, you could approach God. But you could only do it by sacrifice. You could only do it with the help of a priest. But this temple reminded you in every way that although there was a huge barrier to being in God's presence, that that is where you are meant to be. So the temple was actually built in such a way to remind you of the Garden of Eden. There's all this decoration in the temple. There were leaves and there were pomegranates and there were flowers engraved all around it. There was all of these colours. It was supposed to conjure up this Garden of Eden kind of feel. And it was the way of reminding the Israelites that you were actually created to be in God's presence. That's where you should be, but your sin keeps you out. But this passage is telling us that because of Christ, we can be restored to that place that we were meant to be. We can have that peace with God that we're supposed to have. But you know, the temple didn't just look backwards to the Garden of Eden. It also looked forwards to the new creation 
You know, the new temple that is coming when Jesus restores this whole creation. We get visions of this new temple in the book of Revelation where John has this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And the way that he describes it, it, it sounds like the temple. It's got, you know, even-sized walls and it's kind of like a square. But this is what really makes it sound like a temple. This is John's uh, vision. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he said, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, when we gather together, we experience God's presence because we are the temple. That is a foretaste of heaven. That is an experience of what we will ultimately enjoy forever. That presence of God. Now, it's not perfect, this side of Jesus' return. But we do have access to God because of what Christ has done. God is with us. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, When two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. Jesus is with us. I mean, Jesus is with us all the time, right? That's what he says. Surely I'm with you always till the very end of the age. But there's a sense in which we experience that presence in a special way when we gather as God's citizens, as God's family, as God's temple. So how does that work practically? Let me just give you four suggestions of the ways that I think we experience the peace that we have with God when we meet together. First of all, it comes through God's Word, right? In God's Word, when you hear the Bible read and explained, you are hearing God speak to you. That's what we just prayed, right? That that God would speak to us. There's a a habit in in one church tradition that rather than saying at the end of the sermon, how was the sermon, or kind of how did the preacher go, which is the way we usually talk about sermons, but how did you go? How did you go under the preaching of the word today? Because it recognises that actually when we come and hear God's word, God is doing a work on us. God's word, it says in Hebrews, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. When we come together, are we anticipating hearing God speak to us? Are we expecting God to judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts? To mould and shape and remake us? Because that's how we experience God's presence. There's a second way. In each other's words. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German theologian, said, the Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the words of others. The Christ in our own hearts is weaker than the Christ in the words of others. He's not saying that Christ is weak, but he's saying, in my heart, my knowledge of Christ is 
weakened by my own double-mindedness. But when I hear people speak God's word to me, when I hear people speak of Christ, that strengthens my own heart. So when you speak the truth to me, then I experience God's truth in a way that I don't experience just from recounting it to myself. A little while ago, I went away on a boys' weekend. Every second year, we go on this thing called Buwa, Boys' Ultimate Weekend Away. It's fantastic. We eat lots of meat and, and we go fishing and we burn stuff. Although there was a fire thing, we couldn't do it this year. It was very disappointing. Anyway, so we do a bit of trout fishing, right? It's on the river. And this year, I caught a great trout. I could brag about the tra- trout for ages, but I won't. But there's something funny about catching a really excitingly big fish, right? You look at it and you go, man, that's good. But do you know what even feels better than that? Showing it to someone else and having them say, man, that's good. Man, that's a good fish. And that's why you show it to everybody, right? And you put pictures on Facebook because it feels so good to have people go, man, that is a good fish. (laughs) It's the same, I think, with God's word. It's good to have people tell you the truth about Christ. It's good to have people encourage you and say, you know, God is in control. Jesus does know what he's doing. God does love you. Hearing those truths from other lips is a powerful way that we experience God. The third way is in our songs and our prayers. I mean, we've just had a reminder of that, haven't we? As we sing together, we are encouraged to keep singing. I don't know about you, but I'm not very good at singing praise to God by myself. It might have something to do with my singing, I don't know. But... Generally, I need other people to be singing with me. And then I love praising God in song. And it's the same with prayer. I find it much easier to pray when I'm praying with others. People pray and remind you of truths of Scripture and they encourage you as they pray and you think of new things to pray. We're able to experience our relationship with God, enjoy our relationship with God in prayer and praise more when we do it with others. So that's why we gather. And the final one is in our giving and receiving of love. See, this is something that I think happens kind of outside the actual service, in a sense. As we love one another... And as we experience love from one another, we experience God's love. In Romans chapter 5, it says, God pours his love into our hearts. So as you, who have had God's love poured into your heart, love me, then I'm experiencing God's love. As I, who've had God's love poured into my heart, love you, then you are experiencing God's love. See, we mutually love each other with God's love as we serve one another, as we cook meals, as we help people who are sick, as we gather together when people are, are, are in need of help. As we love each other with God's love, we experience God's love. It's another way in which God is present among us as his temple. So why do we come to church? Because it meets our deepest need. 
We were created to be in the presence of God. And we can experience God's presence on our own. But there's an amazing privilege of being part of God's household, part of God's citizens, part of God's temple, as we hear him speak to us. I have some friends at college at the moment who are from Pakistan. And uh, they've come to study with the intention of going back there. Last year in December, a suicide bomber went into a church in Quetta and blew himself up and killed nine Christians who had gathered to worship. A few years earlier in 2013, a similar attack happened in Peshawar, except 127 people were killed. They were in church. You know, my friends tell me that to go to church in Pakistan, you have to be checked by government guards who are stationed at the gates. They make sure that you don't have any weapons, that you're not carrying any bombs. A number of the churches have snipers sitting on the top of buildings nearby in case somebody comes and tries to attack the church, they can take them out. They're not parishioners, usually the snipers. I was a bit concerned. Going to church in Pakistan is dangerous. But does that stop them? No. Because they recognise how much of a privilege it is to be a part of God's people. We don't have those barriers. The barriers we have are usually internal. We're tired. We're busy. But gathering with God's people is an amazing privilege because we meet with God who meets our deepest needs. Let me pray. Father, your grace is astounding that you would make a way open for us even though we deserve your hostility and judgment, you sent your son to draw us near to you. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to celebrate the peace that we have with you and to make the most of it by gathering as your people, lifting our voices in praise and prayer to you and loving one another with the love that you give us. Help us to do this, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.